I worked at Exxon for five years, a long time. Daniel's not here tonight, but I worked for his dad, Exxon Mobil. When you work at a gas station, there's some interesting things that happen to you. Because I think it's one step lower. I'm sorry if you work in McDonald's. I'm not like, I don't not trying to diss anyone in McDonald's. I think it's a step below. I think it's like the lowest of lows because every other job at least has locations. Like you have an occupation in one state, it'll be in another state. My occupation only existed a gas pumper in two states, Oregon and New Jersey, because it's illegal in New Jersey and Oregon to pump your own gas. Every other state, you just pump your own gas. You don't even have my job existing in other states. So I really felt like I was the lowest of low and... It was very unimportant. And so you, you notice a bunch of things when you work as a gas pumper for five years. Uh, I mean, everyone goes to Starbucks. That's particular. You know, you're rich. You go to certain restaurants that, are, that suit your tastes. You go to Starbucks if you like Starbucks. But everyone needs gas. So you see all types of different people. And so people would come to me and tell me, especially with the gas prices being so high, they would say, these prices are ridiculous. I know what you people are doing, and I hate you. Like, people would tell this to, to my face. They'd say, hey, you should lower your prices. Like, I don't have control over prices. You think I have, like, okay, let me go change it for you. Like, people would accuse me as if I was in charge of the Exxon Corporation because people just felt, like, the need to complain. So I thought, well, maybe you shouldn't drive as much. You wouldn't have to spend as much money. What? You think I shouldn't drive? Who are you to tell me that I shouldn't drive as much as I like? Because you see, we always like to complain about what other people are doing, and we don't like to look at how we could solve the problem ourselves if we just corrected our own behavior. I think the funniest thing and most irrational thing that people did when it came to gas is when you're on Facebook and you had those groups, Boycott Exxon on Friday the 11th. You ever see that? Raise your hand if you've seen that before, like, Boycott Exxon. Wow. Okay, so none of you. All right, well, it happened. Maybe it's, you're over it, or maybe you just have to drive babies. No. Okay, so people would say, all right, they're going to make a group. Don't get gas on the 11th. We're going to show that big corporation. We'll show them who's boss. They don't need us, or, you know, we'll show them that they should lower their prices. I don't know. They're trying to make a statement. But no one ever thought that just because they don't get gas on one day, that doesn't mean they're never going to get gas again. Like, oh, we didn't get gas on Friday. They're going to get gas on Saturday or Sunday, and it's just going to be double the amount on Sunday or Saturday or next day after. So people didn't actually make the logical conclusion that just because you don't get gas one day, it doesn't hurt them if you buy gas the next day. Ah, oh, it just made me mad. So I had people coming into me, reporting me to the Better Business Bureau and it's ridiculous. I think a lot of people just like to point out mistakes in other people and like to blame other things without looking inside their own hearts. What is it that I have to change about myself? What is it that I have to change about my driving habits? You always had the rich people that didn't really care about what car they drive. There's always the people that had like the Honda Civic and not dissing anyone with Honda Civics either. But they'd be like, oh my gosh, you got gas in my car. Oh my gosh, you're going to have to get a new paint job. People would be so concerned over the, like, the littlest things, and then it's the rich people that didn't really care. And so people just like to complain. So where am I going with that? I don't know. But Jeremiah chapter 42, no. I do know where I'm going with that. People don't like to hear when they're doing something wrong. People don't like to hear 
when they need to be corrected. And Jeremiah, in case you didn't know, he was a, a prophet that was called by God at a young age. While he was still dependent financially on his parents, living in the same house, he was called at a young age and he wasn't even sure if this is what God really wanted. God, are you really calling me? Do you really want me to say these things to these people? And when God called him, he had a message that was offensive to the people that he was talking to. It was never like, hey, keep doing what you're doing. That's great. He had to preach a message of doom, of punishment. The Lord's hand is upon you to destroy you, to ruin you. These are the things that Jeremiah had to tell to his people. And so they didn't like it. Oftentimes he'd be thrown in prison. Oftentimes he'd be beaten. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, maybe better known as the persevering prophet. But either way, Jeremiah had a very important message to proclaim. It's that Israel was being punished. Why? Because they were worshiping idols that weren't God. They were forsaking the God that raised them, brought them out of Egypt, did all these amazing wonders and miracles for them, and they rejected them. In Jeremiah chapter 2, it talks about, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, the Lord says. And you said, I will not transgress. In other words, I won't sin. When on every high hill and every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. So God says to these people, you say, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to make you mad. I'm not going to betray you. But it's, it seems like every, ch- every chance, every opportunity you have to forsake me, you do it. And then you try to cover it up. You try to wash yourself clean. But I see your iniquity. It's before me. So what did God do? He used a foreign nation. He used Babylon to punish them. This is the ultimate humiliation. God's chosen people were caused to be under slavery from a foreign nation that didn't even believe in God. This was like the ultimate insult to the Jewish people because they thought they were chosen by God. They thought they were selected. These are his special people, his remnant. And they were caused to be put under the, the yoke and burden of a country that didn't even believe in God. How could God allow this to happen? This doesn't even make sense. So the people of Israel were really under a lot of pressure and they wanted to rebel And in fact, that's what they did. There's this guy named Gedaliah. He was a governor placed there by Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember our friend Nebi, Book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar placed Gedaliah as a governor to kind of oversee and make sure Israel didn't do anything wacky. And so this guy named Ishmael, not to be confused with uh, Abraham, Ishmael decided, I'm going to take care of Gedaliah. So he kills him, just forms this rebellion and kills the governor. And so Ishmael's like, oh man, this is bad. I'm getting out of here. He leaves. And what do you do? All the people of Judah are afraid now. What are they going to do? Because Gedaliah has been murdered. How is Babylon going to react? They were afraid that Babylon was going to destroy them. They were going to, because they made this offense, they, they rebelled against the government. They were afraid that Babylon would come and crush them. So now we approach the text in chapter 42 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks a word to these people of Judah that's freaking out. Oh my gosh, we just killed the governor. We don't know what to do because Babylon's going to be really mad. And they consulted the Lord. But as we'll find out, they, they wanted to know that they were okay. They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to hear what was pleasing to their own ears. But we know that God is sovereign. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. 
God can't just let you go free. He can't just say, hey, thanks for murdering a lot of babies. Now I'll just let you go free. No problem. No, because the babies are still murdered. There's still an offense. There's still sin that's left there and it has to be dealt with. There has to be justice. And God deals with it very harshly. An unrepentant world will be judged. If we don't repent of our sins, we too will be judged. But why don't people repent? It seems pretty simple. You do something bad, you say sorry. Why don't people repent? To repent means to turn around, to change what you're doing, go the opposite direction. Why, isn't, why is it the case that people do not repent of their sins? So with that background, I know it's a lot, but I had to bring you up to speed somehow. We're going to go over something very simple today. The four signs of unrepentance. If you want to write that down. We got four signs tonight of unrepentance. But we got to check out verse 1 first of Jeremiah chapter 42. Now all the captains of the forces, Jahanan the son of Kariah, Zezaniah the son of Hashanah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord your God for all this remnant since we are left but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord your God may show us in the way that we should walk and the thing we should do. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard. Indeed, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare to you, I will keep nothing back from you. So they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you. Whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. They said something really interesting there. Whether we like it, whether it's pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. You see, there's something really interesting right there. And God saw it. I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if you saw it in that text right there. But they were just going through the motions Saying whatever sounded good so that they could get on God's good side. Yeah, God, we'll obey you. We'll do whatever it takes. If we have to sacrifice, you know, we'll lay down our lives. We'll do whatever it takes to serve you. And as in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's exactly what the people of Judah were doing. They were just giving God lip service. Yeah, God will follow you. But in reality, their hearts were not ready to follow God, to commit to God. So number one reason, the first sign of unrepentance is that we love our sin, but hate the punishment. We love our sin, but hate the punishment. You know, some people only say sorry because they're afraid of being punished. In other words, they're more concerned about outward appearance they want to continue in sin, just not get caught. That's not true repentance. It's not true repentance to say, yeah, I'm sorry, but I, I really wish I could do what I, I wanted to do. I really wish I could keep sinning, but I'll say sorry so I won't get in trouble. It's like the thief that knows he's going to be convicted of theft. So he turns himself in to the police station because he knows he's going to be caught. And he thinks, maybe if I turn myself in, I'll get a lesser sentence He's not really sorry for what he did. He just turns himself in so he won't be punished as harshly. That's not true repentance. It's not true repentance when you just don't want to get caught by your parents. 
Maybe your parents are one of the parents that says you shouldn't date till a certain age. And you say, well, okay, I'll obey just because I don't want to get caught. That's not true repentance. That's not really being obedient to your parents. Maybe some of you, the only reason that you don't look at porn is because you're afraid of being caught. You're afraid of what your friends will think, what your leaders will think if they knew what you were doing. So you think, oh yeah, I got to stop. I just got to, I got to win. You know, I need to fight over the flesh and I need an accountability partner. We need software on my computer just so that I won't screw up and I'll be found out that I'm a filthy, rotten sinner inside. That's not true repentance. That's just being afraid that you're going to get caught. That's not hating the sin. That's loving the sin and hating the punishment. You see the difference there? These people were looking for sin. And I think a lot of people today are looking for sin without guilt. In other words, a world in which they could be God. They can have control over their life. They could do whatever, they, whatever it is that they want and just not feel the guilt of it. But how can you be forgiven and delivered from sin if you don't want to be? If you want to continue in your sin, why would you be forgiven of it? D.L. Moody said, Many a man would be willing to enter into the kingdom of God if he could do it without giving up sin. People sometimes wonder why Jesus Christ, who lived 600 years before Muhammad, has got fewer disciples than Muhammad today. There is no difficulty in explaining that. A man may become the disciple of Muhammad and continue to live in the foulest, blackest, deepest sin. But a man cannot be a disciple of Christ without giving up sin. It's true. You can't be a follower of Christ if you're not willing to follow him. You can't be a follower of Christ if you're not willing to give up your own wicked ways. And so how do you hate that sin? Well, the more time that you spend with Jesus, the more you're going to learn to hate it. You're going to learn how good God is and how wonderful his plans are, how much better his ways are than your ways are that you're trying to conceive of yourself. You might say, well, I've tried. I've tried to trust Jesus and I spend time with him, but it's still just not there. I just, I don't have that hate for sin like some other people do. I would say that you're not really trusting Jesus. If you trusted Jesus, you wouldn't fail. You know why? Because Jesus' love never fails. The truth is that you trust yourself. If you say, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus, but it's not going away. I'm trusting in Jesus, but I'm not conquering sin. You're not trusting Jesus. You're trusting yourself. You're trusting your own abilities. So let's continue on in chapter, uh, chapter 42, verse 7. And it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jer Jeremiah. Then he called Jehanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster I brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you. Three times he says this, to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. The second sign of unrepentance is that we marginalize God's goodness. The second sign of unrepentance is that we marginalize God's goodness. You see, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, as we know from Romans chapter 2. When we see how good God is, it makes us realize that he's for our good. 
It's his own goodness that shows us that he's not trying to ruin us. It's not that he hates us, but he wants to build us up and not tear us down. He wants to plant us and not pluck us up. So there's something that we have to understand when we're thinking about God's wrath. And that's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Maybe you've heard skeptics before that talk about that God is so, the God of the Old Testament is all about genocide and kills little children and women and they use that as a, a point against Christianity. Have you heard that argument before? Your friends say, well, the God of the Old Testament is all about slaughter and what about the slaughter of the Canaanites and the genocide and, and things like that. And they forget the underlying points. Number one, that God waited 400 years for their sin to become complete. We know that from Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. God gave these people, the Canaanites, 400 years before he told the Israelites to drive them out of the land. That's patient. He wanted to make sure that there was not one good person left in Canaan before he drove them out. Also, number two, that the conquest of Canaan was against the backdrop of Sodom and Gomorrah. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you remember the story of Abraham talking to God, and he says, God, if there are 50 people that are righteous in the land, would you destroy them for 50? He says, no, and if there's 50 people, I won't. 40? No, not 40. I'm sorry, God. What about 30? No, I won't do it for 30. Okay, 10. God's like, no, I won't destroy land for 10 people. You see, God is merciful. He's not willing that any should perish. If there are any repentant people within the land, he certainly would not drive them out. He certainly would not have them killed. And that's another important distinction, that the command was to drive out the Canaanites, not to murder them, to get them out of the land. And also... Lastly, that God used the pagan people sometimes to judge his own people. It's not that he had preference over one people or another, but sometimes he used pagan people, like we look in Jeremiah, to judge his own people. Why do I say all that? Because when you look at the God of the Bible, sometimes you might be afraid that God hates you because you're a sinner. But he doesn't. If there's any hint of repentance, if there's any chance that you want to get right with God, God will find it find a way to reach you and he will find and devise a way to bring you back to himself. So some of you might feel like you're, what about those passages that say there's some vessels made for dishonor? What about those people like Pharaoh that hardened his heart against God and God hardened his heart further and eventually he was never able to be saved? Sometimes you feel like you'll never conquer sin, like you'll never get out. You ever feel like that? Like you're stuck in a sin and it's so gripping on you. You can't do anything without thinking about that sin. You try, you pray, and God forgive me over and over and over. And you just can't seem to rid yourself of that sin. But we have to understand that even God's punishment for our sin, you ever feel like God's punishing you for a sin that's lurking in your heart, something that you've done wrong? God's closing doors because you're sinning against him? You ever feel like there's some times that you would be in a better place right now but the fact is that you're not repenting and you can't stop it. You don't know what to do about it. And God, I, forgive me, but I keep sinning. And because you're sinning, God's punishing you. And now the punishment's there. God hates you. You can't even approach him because the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What do I do? You're like stuck in this trap. What do you do? You have to understand. Everyone look up here. This passage, even the passages of punishment, even when God is punishing you, 
It's against the backdrop of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. Does anyone remember that verse? For I know the plans of you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. He's saying this to a rebellious people that betrayed him. It continues on. In those days when you pray to me, I will listen. If you search for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. God says, if you're looking for me, you're going to find me. It's not like I'm hiding in some corner, like, come and get me. It's not hide and seek. God wants to be found by you. And if you're willing at all to repent of your sin, he is there for you. And when you're God's child, his, punishes, his punishments themselves are for your betterment. He uses those punishments for your sins to make you into a better person. So that you have a testimony when you're done with the sin. Not that you can pursue the sin and be okay with it. But when you're, you're totally enraptured in that sin and you hate it. God uses that sin still and the punishment of that sin to bring you back to himself and to make you into a better person. To build you and not pull you down. To plant you and not pluck you up. It's as if, uh, just as Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. But we must humble ourselves and we must surrender before he judges harshly. We have to see it for what it is. We can't be presumptuous about our sin. We must humble ourselves and we have to keep reading. So look at verse 13. But if you say we will not dwell in this land disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, say no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we, will sh where we, will, we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts and the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So it shall be with all men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, and none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. In other words, they're chasing after their own desires, what they think will make them happy. You know, whenever you're chasing after your own desires, whenever you're committing sin, you're following your own desire because you think in it you're going to have life. You think in it it's going to make you happy. So they said, oh, if only we went to Egypt, we could escape Babylon's punishment. They're like, this makes sense. They're like, why do we even have to pray to God? You just escape Babylon. We'll run to Egypt. No wars, no, no famine, no pestilence. Plenty of food. We'll be fine. We'll go to Egypt. Let's go. They wanted to run away. And God says, listen, you can run. But if you go there, everything that you feared is going to follow you. If you stay here, you'll be fine. You humble yourselves before the Lord. You stay here in the land. I will not let Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, destroy you. But if you run away, he's going to chase you down and he's going to kill you and murder you there. Everything that you want to do in your own life, everything that we're searching for is going to leave us empty in the end. Whatever passion that you're searching for, whatever it is that will make you happy, you think will make happy. You think it's going to give you joy in the things that you're looking for, but in reality it's not. And all you're going to be left with at the end is nothing. You can be a ruler there. Because you see, when we have sin, we think that we can be controlled. We can be our own gods. 
We can be in control of our own lives, but when we have everything taken away from us that's God's, we're left with nothing. So in, in a sense, you are a ruler, but you're a ruler of nothing. You got nothing left except your grave. Your grave can be your throne, in other words. But what kind of ruler is that? Verse 18, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day, for you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the, Lord of, to the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord your God says, so declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent you by me. Now therefore, know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, in the place where you desire to go to dwell. Here's the third sign of unrepentance. We rationalize indwelling sin. The, the third sign of unrepentance is that we rationalize indwelling sin. And that's especially in the verse where it says, you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God. In other words, the literal meaning there is that you wandered about in your soul. You deceived yourself. You thought you were doing something great. You thought you were committing yourself to the Lord. But in reality, you were deceiving yourself when you said that. You are a hypocrite to yourself. And you know, like we said in the beginning, it always seems easier to point out someone else's faults. Have you ever noticed that when you're like, uh, I always think it's funny, like the sports critics always criticizing, oh my gosh, he's terrible. I don't know how he ever made it to the NFL. And these people that usually commentate on these things are like out of shape, you know, drinking and sitting back at home and I was like, yeah, you stink. And they're in the crowds and the bleachers and they're yelling. These people have no place to say that they're not a good player, that the person they're criticizing is a good player. Or in music, sometimes they'll say, oh my gosh, I hate that. The way the guy sings, he has a terrible voice. Can you sing? No, but I just, I mean, compared to everyone else, he's just terrible. We're so critical of other people and we don't take the time to look at ourselves. In Matthew chapter 26, we're reminded that it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You know what Peter said? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. You know, when it comes to sin, we're so eager to point out everyone else's faults and we don't take the time to ask like the disciples did, Lord, is it I? Could it be me that's going to betray you? Instead, Peter says, even if everyone else fails you, even if I have to die, I won't betray you. And Jesus says, it's not just about dying, it's about living. And before this night ends, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Think about David and Bathsheba. Remember, David, with all this sin bundled inside of his heart, 
he looked at everything he was doing and he couldn't see his own sin. And he was covering it up time after time again. He had Uriah killed Bathsheba's husband so that he could be with Bathsheba. Then Nathan the prophet comes up to David and gives him this analogy about lambs. He says, what would you do if there was a guy in your kingdom that took a lamb, you know, he had all these lambs and stuff, and then there's this one poor little old man who had one little tiny little lamb. And he says, oh, I'm going to take that lamb and kill it and eat it for dinner. What would you say to that man? He's like, oh, the lamb. We should have that person killed. And Nathan says, you are that man. David's like, no. Because David couldn't see the sin that was so blatant in front, of, in front of himself. Brian Higgins, this past Wednesday, said something so perfectly that I told him I would quote him on this. Oftentimes we'll, we'll tell people, you know, when we're pointing out their faults, we'll say, I'm just telling them the truth. But in reality, we don't want to hear the truth about ourselves. I think that was just put so well. We always say, oh, I'm just telling them the truth. I have to tell them because it's true. But you don't want to hear the truth about yourself. Romans 2, uh, 1 through 6 says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And it goes on. In lieu of the time, I'll save you there. You can check it out later. So we forget that God can see our thoughts. And we'll say, well, it's not that bad. You know, I have this sin inside and I think these things, but it's not as bad as people that lie and they cheat and they steal. And we think at the same time, yeah, sin must be punished. The murderers must be brought to justice. The people that are thieves must pay back what they owe. There's something innate in us that wants to appeal to justice. I remember uh, the Impact Winter Retreat last year. One particular student, if any of you have noticed, I have a North Faith jacket in the pocket. I have this little dog I've named Pochi. And so uh, one student, I won't call out his name, decided to play a prank on me and take Pochi away from me. And, you know, I think I'm a pretty level-headed person. Maybe that's just me being self-righteous. Might be. But I don't think I get angry too often. But I got angry. And so it came to the point where I was just like, where is Pochi? And he was like, I'm not telling you. I was like, where is he? And it came to the point I took a drumstick and I was just like going like this. It wasn't like hard. Like I wasn't beating him. But I was just like, give him back. Give back Pochi. And so finally he tells me where he is and he's all covered in dirt. And I was just like, who will avenge Pochi? You know, as I'm like having my time of devotion at night, I'm writing my journal. I just couldn't even concentrate on God's word. I was just like, the bitterness in my heart was just like ruining everything. I was just like. It's like, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to take his stuffed animal and show him how it feels And then I apologize, so he's not mad at me anymore, just so you know. Anyway. But there's a part inside of us that always wants to appeal to justice. We always want things to be made right. But when it comes to ourselves, we exclude. We say, well, just not me. We'll judge these other people because things need to be made right, but not when it comes to me. We'll think sometimes that 
well, even though my mind is full of garbage, it's not really as bad as doing the action. It's not really as bad as these people that actually commit those sins. I'm keeping it all inside of myself. And we forget things like in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, when it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, etc. It was the thoughts inside the man's heart that caused God to say, I need to wipe out the earth because every thought is only continually wicked. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doings. We forget that Numbers 32, chapter, uh, chapter 32, verse 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. And it will. We need to pray as David prayed. Search me, O Lord. Try me. Know me. Try my anxieties. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. That has to be our heart. Every single day we come before God and say, Lord, is there anything I'm doing wrong? Am I walking in a way that I should be corrected? We have to humble ourselves. Otherwise the Lord will be eager to bring us down. Last point. Last sign of unrepentance is that we ignore the truth. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 43. We're only reading three verses, but it says, Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent to him all these words that Azariah, the son of Hachananah, Jahanan, the son of Korea, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt to dwell there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of Chaldeans, that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So now they're accusing Jeremiah. They're saying, you're lying. You're speaking falsely. The Lord didn't tell you to say that. You're only saying that so they'll be placed right into the hands of the enemy. So they're speaking against God's prophet, calling him a liar. It's not really the word of God. They're, they want to hear what they want to hear. And when Jeremiah doesn't tell them it, they want to search for other answers. But a true messenger from God will tell you the truth even when it hurts, especially when it hurts. Do you have a friend that tells you things that you don't always want to hear? The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you surround yourself with a bunch of people that just tell you what you want to hear, they're not really your friends. They're just people that want to hang around you because they want things from you. You need to surround yourself with people that will tell you the truth even when it's not favorable to you because it's for your good. It's through the suffering, it's through changing of hearts that we become better people. But how hardened must a person be to ignore the word of God? How hardened do you have to become? How much do you have to hate God's word to ignore it? To hate what he has to say to you? Yet how many of us do that very thing? How many of us sit here on a week-to-week -week basis and ignore everything that I'm telling you? It just goes over the head. It's always for someone else. It's never about you. Anytime it's convicting, you just kind of like rationalize away. Well, it's not really me. This is why I don't have to change. In acting, we used to always talk about rationalization was the, always the most dangerous thing. You know, when an actor would come out, we're doing improv scenes or whatever, you'd have to play a sad player. 
you know, an actor and you're pretending to be sad and you're going out there and you had inside of you, you had uh, your focus on something that made you sad or whatever. And you had to express that to the audience. But if the audience couldn't tell that you were sad, my professor would say, well, where was the scene? Why weren't you sad? Like, oh, I was, and this is why. And you rationalize to the audience, but it didn't communicate to us. You're saying, well, yeah, this is why I was doing this because, because you see, when you rationalize, you can rationalize pretty much anything. There will always be a reason why you can't follow God's word. There will always be not enough time. There will always be too much to do. There will always be reasons you can't come to youth group. You can rationalize pretty much anything. And that's why rationalization, rationalization is dangerous because it gets farther and farther away from reality. Just as we in acting class would always rationalize, this is why it's... This is why I'm acting this way and this is why I'm doing the things I'm doing. And same, same way in our lives, we'll rationalize why we can't listen to God and it gets us farther away from the truth. We'll think, well, torrenting isn't the same thing as stealing music. Always rationalize that. But maybe like a child, you know, you're looking at a little kid and say, is that yours? No. Don't you think you should give it back? No. So many of us will rationalize things, but if you just get down to the root of it, they are sin. We're just not willing to admit it to ourselves. We might say, I only act differently around my non-Christian friends so I can witness to them. Have you ever thought that before? Because I thought that before. There was a time in my life that I, I used to think, people just know when I'm a Christian. You know, it'll just kind of shine. So let your light shine before men that they may know that you're of God, whatever. There was a time in my life that I was so full of pride that I just would not witness to anyone because I was saving it, building a relationship with them so I could share the gospel with them later. And it would always be tomorrow and never today. And then it came a point in my life that I was looking at everyone so hypocritically. I couldn't see the own sin in my heart. I would go to shows and I, I was criticized because I wanted to be a musician. I would criticize the bands that would say, and we do this for our Lord Jesus Christ. I was like, that's such a wimpy way of doing it. Because their actions are totally separate from what they're doing. They might say, yes, we serve God, but they go drinking backstage. Or they just give God that byline, but they don't reflect it in their music. And I said, well, that's wimpy. And then there came a point in my life where God says, well, when have you done anything different? When's the last time you evangelized to someone? And I didn't know what to say. I was like, well, God, I don't know. Just like you haven't put anyone in my life. And I said, well, what about that person? Well, I'm working on them. I just need to get the opportune time and, and then it'll come. It'll always come tomorrow. It'll always be a reason why we can't follow God today. And it came to that point where I was like, all right, God is obviously speaking to me. If I don't listen to God, that's just as bad as not having faith in God. If I don't obey God right now and listen to what he has to say, if I'm not letting my light shine before men, if I'm not doing something different, if I'm not proclaiming God to people around me, then God will also deny me be before his heavenly father. So it came to a point where I just took 20 people in my phone. I literally wrote this really long, stupid text message that gave the gospel in a text message and sent it to 20 people that I haven't even talked to in like years. Some people I only talked to once that I just met at a show or something. And I sent it to these people. I was just like, this is the worst thing I'm doing in my life. This isn't even going to work. But you know what? You know what I did? Because some people might say that. Like, how is that even going to affect anyone? No one even cares. 
Like it's so ineffective. There's always bare ways to evangelize. There's always bare methods. But you know what? At least that night I could go to bed praying, God, I pray that you use the thing that I did, my act of obedience to reach that person. Instead of just saying, Lord, I pray you just bless that person. I pray that person comes to know God. I pray he comes to know you. And that's all I would say. But there is no action to back it up. It's a completely different prayer. So in conclusion, I'm going to ask, what will be your response to God's conviction? How are you going to react when God tugs on your heart? You can't count on your own righteous standing. You can't be like Judah that says, well, we're God's chosen people. And this is why we don't have to do anything because God's already accepted us. You can't say, I go to church, I go to Christian school, so, and I do good things, therefore I don't have to repent. Because all of our righteousnesses, as the Bible says, are like filthy rags before God if it's not done in faith, if it's not done in him. So are you going to accuse me? Are you going to say right now, well, I don't think Alan's really hitting the knot right now. I don't think he's speaking the truth. Are you going to be like the Judeans that said, you speak false, falsely? Some of you just waiting for this to be over. You know, I could package this in so many more effective ways. We could hire some guy from afar. We could hire like, you know, pay a lot of money and have a youth conference, have a lot of really exciting worship and have a speaker that's really charismatic and is going to like be able to make you laugh and do all these things. But at the end of the day, the message is the same. Are you going to follow God? Or you want to do your own thing? You can do your own thing. It's going to leave you empty. You're going to be in a desert. You can be a ruler, but you'll be a ruler of nothing because God's going to take everything that he has away from you because it's all his in the first place.